Autumn presents. She doesn't believe all women. Written by Amanda Fitzsimmons. On the afternoon of July 3rd, the day before President Donald Trump's rained on Independence Day celebration, or show of a lifetime, depending on whose Twitter feed you look at, a small but committed group left a wharf in Washington, D.C. for a cruise on the Potomac. In 2016, we learned that the Trump coalition was broader than many had assumed. The hold-your-nose-vote-your-pocketbook one-percenters, the suburban soccer moms who, when it came down to it, were a little skittish about immigration. But the 200-some-odd passengers aboard the Spirit of Washington were emphatically not those people. This was a Trump campaign rally crowd in full flower. Women carried evening clutches with MAGA spelled in rhinestones. One guest was literally wrapped in the flag. The star's portion nodded at her neck, the rest wafting in the waterfront breeze like Superman's cape. There were bikers for Trump, cowboys for Trump, a woman peddling 24-karat gold-plated Trump hologram novelty bills for $30. Proceeds, she explained, would go to defeating Representative Ilhan Omar. And yet, the woman of the hour, the person with whom just about everyone wanted to take a selfie, was a 76-year-old grandmother named Juanita, with a heart-shaped face and a cascade of blonde curls wrangled into a ponytail. On her navy sheath, she wore a Trump 2020 pin no bigger than American Airlines wings. Before she even reached the check-in desk at the pier, she was approached for a picture by a statuesque woman in her early 30s, wearing a sundress and a MAGA hat. I know you from Fox News, the woman said. Another woman told her, I just love your Twitter. I have it open on my phone right now. A man who said he was running for Congress against California's Adam Schiff made sure they swapped contact info. It was clear he wanted her endorsement. Throughout the three-hour trip, she was polished and patient and gracious. At the same time, she seemed a little uncomfortable with all the fuss. When we were back on dry land, I asked how many people she thought had wanted to take a selfie with her, and she looked embarrassed. Oh, no more than 30, she said, undoubtedly undercounting her fans. Outside of Trump's base, the name Juanita Broderick may stir only muddled memories. Wasn't she one of the women not named Monica Lewinsky who accused Bill Clinton of something? Paula Jones, Kathleen Willey, Jennifer Flowers, their stories can blur, but each of these women has a distinct set of allegations, and Broderick's are the most serious. She says Clinton raped her in 1978, when he was the Attorney General of Arkansas, and she was a volunteer for his gubernatorial campaign. She did not report the alleged crime to the police. In fact, Broderick's name wasn't made public until two decades later, via a 1998 court filing in the Paula Jones case. Clinton denied the allegations. Even though Broderick did some press, once she'd been outed, she wanted the chance to share her perspective. The story didn't stick to the Clinton legacy the way Lewinsky's has. At the time, her claims were mostly ignored, and when acknowledged, they were often disparaged. 
The fact that she'd recanted in an affidavit after being subpoenaed by Jones's lawyers was a favorite data point of critics. Broderick says she denied that anything had happened with Clinton because she didn't want to get involved in a big legal circus with Jones. But the worst part of the aftermath had already happened by then, Broderick told me. Clinton had been the leader of the free world for five long years. Just seeing him on TV, it was constant. I don't know who got to be the quickest, my husband or me, switching the channel, she said. She even ended up going to an earlier church service, because at her usual one, the priest had taken to asking congregants to pray for the president. I had to sit in church, down on my knees, and be told that I am to pray for Bill Clinton. By the early aughts, she'd faded into relative obscurity and basically moved on with her life. Then, Hillary Clinton ran for president, and her pronounced pro-woman agenda stirred up decades-old resentment. I kept thinking, why can't you see this huge elephant in the room? Broderick recalled. Why can't you see this woman for what she really is? One day, Broderick decided she had to weigh in. Though she'd tweeted only three times before the 2016 election cycle, she sent out a statement that went viral. I was 35 years old when Bill Clinton, Arkansas Attorney General, raped me. I'm now 73. It never goes away. Nine months later, the Trump campaign issued what would be a fateful invitation. Would she sit in the audience during the candidate's second debate with Hillary Clinton? Since that October evening, Broderick has popped up semi-regularly on Fox News and become something of a MAGA thought leader, with 133,000 followers on Twitter, where her commentary ranges from insults, like calling Representative Schiff, Schiff for brains, to borderline hate speech, retweeting a picture of the short-haired soccer star Megan Rapino and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, captioned, Boy Meets Girl. She travels the country speaking to conservative groups and signing copies of her self-published memoir, You'd Better Put Some Ice on That, so named for the last thing Broderick says Clinton uttered before leaving the scene of the alleged assault in which he bit her lip so violently that he drew blood. Twitter augments the snarkier side of almost everyone's personality. But the gulf between Broderick's social media persona and her actual one is especially wide. In the days after Broderick denigrated E. Jean Carroll, the woman who accused Trump of rape in her new book, tweeting that she looked like the Jeopardy host Alex Trebek, I called her to request an interview. To hear Broderick's genial alto drawl was jarring, as was the contrast between the vitriolic at a tennis nut, Broderick is a huge tennis fan, and the woman who later greeted me with a bear hug when we met in the lobby of a day's inn near her home. I'd mentioned on the phone that I'd forgotten my toothbrush, and though it was a Sunday morning, she'd come over to transport me to the nearest drugstore. She hadn't been planning on church that day anyway, she assured me. Even the story of how she'd launched her Twitter activism, her grandson had helped, she'd barely known how the thing worked, was endearing.
toothbrush secured, Broderick took me on a tour of the place where she's spent almost her whole life, Fort Smith and neighboring Van Buren. Fort Smith has the second largest population in the state after Little Rock, though it's by no means a metropolis. The downtown's stately, wide boulevards and meticulously preserved antebellum architecture are its main selling points. The city is so quintessentially Old South that it served as a location for The Blue and the Gray, a 1980s miniseries about the Civil War starring Stacy Keach. Most interesting were Broderick's personal landmarks. She pointed out the spot where her parents, both white Southerners despite what her first name might suggest, used to own a dry cleaner. The place where a tomboyish Juanita broke her arm at eight years old while visiting a classmate's horse farm. Now a Walmart. Welcome to Arkansas. The movie theater where four-year-old Juanita and her six-year-old sister Patsy would take the bus to watch spaghetti westerns while their parents spent 12-hour days pressing suits. Life was different back then. Or her mother and father were really irresponsible. She's undecided. The sprawling 40-acre property where she'd lived with her second husband, a cowboy who lassoed cattle in their backyard, and then by herself after the two divorced in 2003. She downsized only last year, moving to a two-bedroom condo in a nearby gated community. The law offices of her only child, Kevin, whom she adopted when he was two days old. The high school, where she attends every home football game to watch Kevin's boy, her 16-year-old grandson, play fullback. Broderick was most animated, however, when we stopped at a nursing home she'd run that had won awards for outstanding patient care and at a facility for children with severe disabilities she'd owned and operated before retiring in 2008. In fact, she said, the whole reason she met Bill Clinton on the day of the alleged attack was to ask for his help in procuring more funds for needy long-term care patients. For most of her life, Broderick said, she was politically independent. Clinton's race for governor was the first time she ever showed the slightest interest in politics, and she only got involved because a friend in her women's league talked her into it. She voted for George W. Bush twice, but threw in with Barack Obama in 2008 and even gave $3,000 to his campaign, she said. At first, she wasn't sold on Trump. I did not know what to make of this man. Then, in May 2016, she watched an episode of Hannity in which Trump used the word rape to describe Broderick's claim. It was a word she'd avoided. I almost fell out of my chair. That's when I was firmly in his corner, she told me. It was personal. She felt vindicated, believed. Around this time, she also started gravitating toward Trump's policies. She liked the border wall and his ideas for stimulating the economy, and she appreciated that this man seemed to be sacrificing a comfortable life to make America better, she said. When the campaign called the day after the infamous Access Hollywood tape was released to ask if she could fly to St. Louis for the debate, she went to Kevin for advice. He told me, don't do it, Mom. They're just using you. 
but she told her son that she didn't much mind being used if that meant underlining the hypocrisy of Hillary Clinton. How could she, of all people, express outrage about the tape? The Republicans use the Clinton victims the same way the liberal media uses the victims, the supposed victims, of Mr. Trump and Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh, Broderick said. It's truly politics. She does have her limits, though. When she got wind that the campaign operatives were angling to seat her within spitting distance of Bill Clinton at the debate in hopes of provoking a confrontation, she was horrified. I would have walked out if that had happened, she told me. After the election, an unlikely turn of events. Broderick received something of a collective mea culpa from the left. MSNBC's Chris Hayes tweeted that Democrats were overdue for a real reckoning with the allegations against Clinton. The New York Times columnist Michelle Goldberg published an op-ed headlined, I Believe Juanita. And the Washington Post's Richard Cohen wrote that he regretted dismissing Broderick's plausible charges for so long. The proximate cause of the reassessment was Me Too. The immediate one, at least for Cohen, was an interview Broderick did last fall for Slow Burn, Leon Nafok's blockbuster podcast about Clinton's impeachment. Some combination of the episode's timing, on the heels of Kavanaugh's state testimony, and Broderick's beat-by-beat -beat retelling of her own interaction with Clinton. He grabs me, and that's when things turned really bad. Upended people's assumptions. Gruesome is how Nafok described the interview when we spoke on the phone. Broderick is grateful for her newfound backing from bold-faced liberal names, but also wary of it mostly because the Me Too movement itself hasn't exactly welcomed her. In 2017, Broderick was approached by Time magazine about participating in what would turn out to be its Person of the Year issue, celebrating sexual harassment whistleblowers. And though she submitted a blurb in support of Me Too, it ended up on the cutting room floor. A spokesperson for Time said that editors reached out to dozens of people for possible inclusion, and that Broderick was one of many who didn't make it. But Broderick views the omission as a personal snub. Me too wants nothing to do with me. In April 2018, when the movement's founder, Tarana Burke, was confronted during a presentation about whether she believed Broderick, she hedged. More evidence to Broderick that she was being shunned by the Me Too universe. The veracity of her story continues to be called into question, even by a handful of people on the right. About a week before we met, George Conway, the relentless Trump critic and husband of White House counselor Kellyanne Conway, argued in the Washington Post that, if anything, E. Jean Carroll was at least as credible as Broderick, since the latter had once recanted. As an informal advisor to Paula Jones, Conway had a front row seat for the flip-flop. The evolving opinion about Broderick's claim hasn't inspired her to temper her support for Trump. Part and parcel of that is her unwillingness to trust the word of a single one of the more than 15 women who have accused the president of sexual misconduct. 
Trump has denied the allegations. They need to be investigated, she likes to say. Her determination to stand by her man is especially surprising when it comes to Carol, because the two women's stories are eerily parallel. Both women say they were tricked into being alone with the men. Both Carol and Broderick told friends at the time of the incident, and these friends have corroborated their accounts. Both allegations surfaced decades after the fact. Both women said they were raped, as opposed to sexually harassed or groped like the other accusers of Clinton and Trump. Broderick told me she thinks Carol just wanted attention. Carol also acted strangely during an appearance on CNN, Broderick said. I'm sure she knows he's gay, but it was like she was putting the make on Anderson Cooper. Ultimately, Broderick said, her skepticism comes down to her gut. Not just her feelings about Carol, but about all the women who have accused the president of sexual improprieties. When you've been raped, you have a persona about you. It's almost like you can sense it. I don't have ESP, but you can almost feel their feelings if these things really happened to them. She knows a rape victim when she sees one. It's hard to believe someone who has been so wounded by having her own rape case rejected, not to mention a person who has worked with abused children, would so blithely dispense with women who make similar claims. Nafok has a theory about Broderick's all-in attitude toward Trump. She's found a willing audience in conservative media. She believes what she needs to believe. In other words, he said, she's a partisan hack like the rest of us. Yes, and maybe she's also embittered that the women now coming forward have been taken more seriously than she was, than she still is in some quarters. For all the heightened awareness of sexual assault, we are, of course, a polarized nation. It is at once astonishing and predictable that many of us look at an individual and see only her tribe, even those of us with the most cause to avoid that kind of reductive thinking. This article was read by Stina Nielsen. If you enjoyed this production, find the best long-form articles read aloud in the Autumn app, available now for iPhone.